Find chapter 20. Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. 1 Kings 20. 1 Kings 20. Got it? Benadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Benadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Benadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Benadad, Tell my lord the king all that you first demanded of your servant I will do. But this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Benadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, Let not, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. When Benadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? He answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. And they went out at noon while Benadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the 32 kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Benadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, Men are coming out from Samaria. He said, If they have come out for peace, take them alive, or if they've come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them, and each struck down his men. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them, but Benadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. 
And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this. Remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Benadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. And the man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said... The Lord is a God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, a hundred thousand foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Benadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And his servants said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waist and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Benadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother Benadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. Then Benadad came out to him and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Benadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore. And you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you've gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, Strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, 
Your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. Some years ago, a major newspaper uh, had a front page article, and in that article, they were pointing out how in America, there is no more words of judgment that we read about. Uh, the article said, even the pulpits of the land that once preached hell and God's judgment are silent. You can look through the land now, and even in America's great pulpits, the article said, you will seldom hear a word that judgment is coming. But folks, we know that the scripture says judgment is coming. Paul says about Christians even in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation 20 verses 11 and following talks about a great white throne and God sitting upon that throne and all of heaven and earth fled out of fear. And the books were opened. The Bible talks in Matthew 25 about the goats and the sheep. Luke 16, Jesus told a story about a rich man and Lazarus. A rich man going to, to hell and Lazarus going to Abraham's bosom. So scripture on and on in many other places even talks about judgment coming. There is judgment coming. And, you know, sometimes people want to avoid talking about it because they think, you know, it's so out there in the future. In other words, I've got so much time to, to get ready to meet God. I don't need to do anything about it right now. And they forget what James says in James 4. Life is a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. Who knows when it's your time or my time? Let us realize even if judgment is delayed does not mean that judgment is denied. Judgment delayed does not mean judgment denied. Now tonight we're going to continue to look at a man, Ahab, who seemed absolutely determined to disobey God. He had married Jezebel, and as we've seen in previous weeks, together they introduced paganism, they introduced Canaanite religion, Baalism, into Israel on such a level that had not even been seen before. This was a wicked, wicked couple. Ahab and Jezebel. And tonight we're going to see that even though God gave him a chance to begin turning around Ahab simply would not. He was a man who refused to trust God and he refused to repent. 
What hope is there for somebody like that? Well, the first thing I want you to notice with me tonight, you've got a very brief study guide this evening, the conflict presented. The conflict presented. As the chapter opens, we see Israel at war with her neighbor just to the northeast of her. Now, let me, uh, let me just remind you of something. And I failed kindergarten art school, so you know, keep that in mind. But anyway, let's say you have the C over here. You have Syria up in here. And here's the land of Israel. You have the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. And then if we could look all the way down here, you would have Egypt. Okay? You with me? And then over here, the nations to the east, along in here, here's uh, where you had the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Okay? So you have Assyrians here, And the Assyrians. Two different groups. Right? Now the Syrians just north of Israel, they were the constant pesky neighbors to Israel. But the Assyrians are flexing their muscles. And they're moving into this area. Okay? Why was everybody so interested in the land of Israel? Well, for one thing, major trade routes went through Israel from Egypt over to the nations to the east. Major highways, major tra trade routes went through there. And so the nations around Israel would oftentimes attack Israel trying to gain possession and control of these major trade routes. So the Assyrians are flexing their muscles. They're moving into this area. And uh, we know that Assyria was an absolutely ruthless nation. I mean, these folks were so ruthless, they utterly tortured and destroyed their enemies. They were, they were vile. They were like the ancient ISIS group or something. You didn't want to fall into the hands of the Assyrians. I mean, it's no wonder that when Jonah, when God told Jonah to go to the Assyrians and preach against them, Jonah didn't want to go to them. No way did he want to go to the Assyrians. Well, again, they flex their muscles. They've gained control of some of the, the trade routes around Syria. And so now uh, Syria is trying to move uh, southwest down into Israel's territory, okay? Uh, they're trying to move down there and take back over some of these trade routes. And so here is, here is Benadad, the king of the Syrians, sometimes also called Aram, A-R-A-M. The Syrians or Aram. 
Benadad's king there, and there are 32 lesser kings, more like governors in Syria, or maybe even mayors. And Benadad with these 32, they're wanting to come down here into the northern kingdom and capture the northern kingdom. Now, at this point in Old Testament history, the northern kingdom was also sometimes referred to as what? Samaria. Israel or Samaria. Sometimes Ephraim. Uh, a major tribe. You might read in your Old Testament the northern kingdom being referred to as Israel, Samaria, or Ephraim. Okay? Uh, later in Bible history, we know that Samaria or the northern kingdom, is going to become very polluted and syncretistic that by the New Testament period of time, Samaria, an area within Israel, was very despised by the Jews because remember when the Assyrians finally did come in and destroy the northern kingdom, they moved foreigners in here who intermingled and intermarried with the Israelites there in the northern kingdom. And so they just came, became a mixed people. And their religion was sort of like that too. And so that by Jesus' day, Samaria was despised. When people of Judah would be going up to the region of Galilee, sometimes they would cross over the Jordan River and go up this way so they wouldn't have to go through Samaria. And then they would hop back over and land in Galilee. Okay? Well, Benadad captures Samaria or Israel and basically says to Ahab, everything in your household, anything valuable, even your wives and your children, in addition to your wealth, are now mine. <clears throat> Ahab at this point concedes. Benadad continues to raise the stakes. I'm basically going to go anywhere I want to in Samaria and claim anything I want. And so he's, he's kind of broadening out what he's going to come down here and take. The king of Israel, Ahab, consults with the elders of the land, and they say, tell, tell Benadad enough is enough. Tell him no way is he coming and doing everything he wants to do. So that's what they report to Benadad. Makes Benadad mad, who says basically, well, I'm, I'm coming into the area for sure now. I'm just going to flatten it. I'm going to destroy it. In verse 11, Ahab gives a great answer. Ahab reminds him, don't boast like somebody coming from war, experiencing victory. Uh, don't, don't boast like somebody who's coming from war with, with victory. Uh, you know, we've not even gone to war yet. You're boasting like it's already been done and you've already won. You know, Benadad at this point kind of reminds me back during Desert Storm. Remember what uh, Saddam Hussein was telling, getting word to George Bush and the American troops and all? 
you can come over here to Iraq, and this is the desert is going to be your grave. You remember that? All that boasting that uh, Saddam Hussein was doing? That's kind of how Benadad here was. Uh, same kind of arrogance. And supposedly in this part of the world, that kind of arrogance is kind of par for the course in a lot of the leaders. Both currently as well as ancient. They just boast like that. Well, in verse 13, God sends a prophet to assure Ahab that Ahab and Israel are going to defeat the Syrians. And through the prophet, God announces that Ahab will be able to stand back and see the glory of God, and Ahab will know that this is a victory from the God of Israel. You see, this, this conflict should have been a cakewalk for Benadad. They were stronger than the Israelites. His army was much, much bigger at this point. This ought to be an easy, easy victory for Benedict. But God gets a message to Ahab saying, Benedict's going down. You're going to win this victory, and you're going to know, Ahab, that there is a God in Israel. You and your wife Jezebel might have thumbed your noses at me and brought Baalism into the land, but you're going to see that I'm God in Israel. And even though you don't deserve it, Benadad, I mean, even though you don't deserve it, Ahab, I'm going to give you and the Israelites victory over the Syrians. You know, a lot of times in Scripture... We see God doing things like this, right? When his people are backed into a corner and for all practical purposes should be destroyed, God gives them the victory. Why does God do that? So he alone gets the glory, right? God's going to do the same thing here. Wicked King Ahab is going to see something spectacular. He's going to see what Yahweh is able to do. God's going to do this just so Ahab can try to get a vision of what, what God's able to do. Again, Ahab's been thumbing his nose at Yahweh. But Ahab's going to get a taste for what God is able to do. Now, when Ahab's troops came up against Benadad, he and Benadad and 32 kings with him are these governors. What are they doing? They're drinking. They're getting drunk. What's that tell you? taking this battle seriously. They think that they are so much stronger than the Israelites, they don't even need to be preparing for battle. They don't even need to be getting ready. They're just getting drunk. Arrogance. Well, when they get word that Ahab's men are coming, it's like steel. They don't even look up from their beer mugs. Benadad says, take them alive. Benadad's thinking, this is going to be so easy. You know, just, just take them. But man, what a surprise God has in store. Israel's troops win, kill the Arameans, 
Uh, to a point that those who are remaining of the Syrians, they take off running, Benadad included. What a lesson this is for Ahab. What a lesson for us today. One plus God is a majority. It's like Paul says in Romans 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? If you're on God's side, you're on the winning side. Now, that doesn't matter that you're that doesn't mean that you're not going to face battles. It doesn't mean that you won't have enemies. But God's with you. God's with you. Folks, human odds don't mean anything up against the sovereign God of the universe. Remember that God even swallowed up Pharaoh's army. I mean, the Israelites, when they came out of Egypt, they'd been slaves. They weren't even a prepared army yet. Egypt was one of the great superpowers of the day with an army. The Israelites, when they came out of Egypt, they were just a band of slaves. And yet, what did God do for Israel? Defeated Pharaoh and Pharaoh's armies. God is not challenged by human odds or statistics. Folks, there have been countless Christians through the ages who from the world's standpoint of view, they should have lost everything. And yet God helped them. God saved them. Second thing I want you to see tonight, the conflict intensified, beginning there in verse 22. Here a prophet comes to Ahab, warns him that all that Syria is going to do is go back from this defeat. And, and what, what's, what's Syria going to do? They're going to regroup, right? And come spring of the year next year, what's Benadad going to do with his army? He's going to come once again against Israel, right? And that's a lesson for us too as well, isn't it? One victory does not guarantee that the war is won. We've got to be constantly vigilant. The Bible you know, says that Jesus, after Satan tempted them in the wilderness, he left Jesus alone for a season. And Paul reminds us in writing to the Ephesians that the spiritual warfare that we're in, we've got to be vigilant every day because the enemy always comes against it. We've got to be on guard. The, de the devil is always looking for a more opportune time. And so the prophet is telling Ahab here, Benadad's coming again. You won this first battle, but don't let your guard down. Get your troops ready again because spring of next year, the Syrians are coming back. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens? And notice what the Syrians are saying this time. They're telling Benadad, this time we're going to draw Israel out into the open plains. Because, see, the Syrians had chariots. The Israelites didn't. And they also tell Benadad, Benadad, let's get rid of some of these politicians you have over segments of the troops. Let's replace them with real military generals and leaders. 
And then let's draw Israel out into the plains. And they add another reason. Uh, they say it's not our fault that we lost our first battle against Israel because Israel's God is God over the hill country, but our gods are the gods over the plains. So when we draw Israel out onto the plains, we'll have our gods with us and we'll beat them. And Israel's God, God of the hills, won't be able to do anything to protect his people. What are they expressing here? An ancient belief that each nation had its own gods. And their own gods had certain areas they were strong in. That, that was a common belief. Must have been even what Jonah believed to some, to some degree. Because Jonah, remember Jonah, he thought he could go down to Tarshish, get on the ship, pay the fare, get on the ship, and get away. Get away from God's presence. If I just get away from Israel, get out on the sea, I'll be out of Yahweh's jurisdiction. How'd that work out for Jonah? Yeah. <laughs> he met God out to say that. What are the Syrians going to learn? That God is Lord over all. He's the sovereign God of the universe. He's the only God. He's the true and the living God. It doesn't matter if you're in Israel in the hills or on the plains or in Syria or Assyria or Babylon or wherever. The Lord, He is God. And he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything belongs to God. And God is sovereign over all. There are no other true gods up next to him. But again, Syrians, they're placing all their faith in, you know, let's just get these Israelites out on the plains and then we'll beat them. And once again, God's going to show them that everybody's going to see that I am the Lord. That's what God's going to teach them all. Folks, God doesn't do things just to make us feel good. God does what He does on earth to bring glory to His name. And you know what that tells me? If God's done something great in your life, you need to acknowledge it being from Him and give testimony to others that it's from Him. Well, once again, what's the outcome here? God routed the enemy and Benadad had to flee. And in this great display of humility, Benadad and these other leaders go to Ahab. They cast themselves on the mercy of the court, so to speak, and it works. Ahab ends up showing mercy to Benadad and the two men strike a new treaty there in Ahab's chariot. Israel's going to get some of her cities back from the Syrians. And then Israel's also going to be able to set up trade on the public streets of Damascus. Damascus, a, a main city up here in Syria... Not only will Israel get some of the cities back from that the Syrians have captured, but also Israel is going to be able to go to Damascus and out in the open air marketplace and all, they're going to be able to 
to trade. Buy and sell and trade. And so what do we have here essentially that's taking place in Ahab's chariot when Ahab has won the war and he invites Benadad to come up into his chariot and talk? What do we have here? We have a new trade policy essentially between Israel and Syria. Now, from a human standpoint of view, it seems like Israel has come away from this smelling like a rose. It's only one problem. What's that one problem? God wasn't in this. God wasn't in this tree. Oh, sure, God was God was in causing Israel to defeat the Syrians. God was in that. But God wasn't in this tree that Ahab has struck with Benadad. God wanted Benadad and the Syrians wiped out. He didn't want Ahab making deals with Benadad. You know, it reminds me of when Samuel told Saul to go to war against the Amalekites and wipe them out. You remember that story in 1 Samuel 15? Talked about that a little bit this morning at, at Taylor Glen. They went to battle against the Amalekites. They won. They were to wipe everything out. Samuel comes and meets Saul and Saul pronounces to Samuel that he has done as the Lord said. And Samuel said, well, if you've obeyed the Lord and done as the Lord said, what's this bleeding of the sheep I, I hear in my ears? And Saul says, oh, we defeated the Amalekites, but, you know, uh, my people, they wanted to save the best of the livestock so they could sacrifice to God. And Samuel says, Saul, this is not what God told you to do. God told you to wipe everything out. The Amalekites and everything that they had and owned. You weren't supposed to claim some of the spoils of, of the battle. And that great phrase that Samuel says to Saul, God cares more about obedience than he does about sacrifice. Same thing going on here. Just like Saul, Ahab hasn't obeyed. Ahab has led the Israelites to defeat the enemy but instead of wiping them all out, now here's Ahab trying to make a new trade deal with them. And God was not pleased by this. So, what do we have? The third thing, the king judged. Judgment's coming. You know, oftentimes in Scripture, God will give His people a lesson through some type of image, right? Don't, don't you love that in Ezekiel, for instance? Some of the things Ezekiel does. What are some of those, what are some of those things God has Ezekiel do? Well, he built a city, a fort, Jerusalem and a fort around it. He did that. And he used to lay on his side yeah. and like conduct little battles in the dirt, right? He had to cut his hair. Cut his hair. Into his hair. Yep. 
See, God would have his people, his prophets, do that sometimes and, and communicate truth through that. And, and that's pretty much what's going on here. That there's going to be a couple of prophets. God has spoken to some unnamed prophet, and we don't know. We don't know who the unnamed prophet is here at this point. God knows. Uh, he tell this one prophet tells another prophet what to do, and that other prophet won't do it. He tells him that he's going to die for his disobedience. And that's exactly what happens. And it seems rather harsh to us, but it's a lesson again of how much God cares about obedience. Even a prophet will be judged if he doesn't obey God. What the prophet who dies was supposed to realize, God had spoken to this other prophet, what that prophet's telling him to do to strike him, that's a message from God, but he won't do it. And so he disobeys God by not striking that other prophet. And God kills him. He tells another prophet to strike him. The other one does. And he goes out and plays the part of a wounded warrior. Ties the bandage around his head and so forth. When the king comes by, when Ahab comes by, he tells the king what he was supposed to do. You know, I, I captured this enemy of the Syrians and he got away. And I've been told if he gets away, it's going to be your life for his life if he gets away. And what's Ahab saying? Well, you've spoken your own judgment. If you were to die, and you knew you were to die, if your prisoner of war got away, you know that. Your prisoner of war got away. So, Ahab's telling this guy, so be it. you got to die. And then this prophet, like Nathan with David, says, Ahab, you're the man. He gets Ahab involved in his own story. You had Benadad captured. You had him captured. You let him go. You were supposed to have wiped him out. And so Ahab, since you let him go, you let your prisoner of war go, you will die. So this little exercise the prophet is doing here, you, you see what he's doing just like Nathan did with David? You remember how Nathan told that story about the rich man and the poor man? They had the little lambs and the rich man took the one little ewe lamb of the poor man. And David was so enraged that a rich man with an abundance of livestock would have done something like that. This guy's going to die. Nathan says, you're the man. Here's the prophet. saying, I had a prisoner. I was to kill him. Or certainly not let him get away. If he got away, his life, my life for his life, I let him get away. Ahab's like, you've got to die. He says, Ahab, you've just spoken God's judgment about yourself. You had your prisoner of war and you let him get away. You're going to die. 
If God told you something like that, what do you think your response would be? You'd be, you'd be confessing and repenting, wouldn't you? You'd be calling on the name of the Lord. I messed up, Lord, forgive me. You think Ahab repents? He's just mad. He goes home sullen and pouting. He's just pouting and sullen. What's going to happen in chapter 22? We're going to see how Ahab does indeed die. God brings judgment on disobedient Ahab. It's too late for him. He won't listen to God. He won't repent. He won't change. He just gets mad and pouts. And the prophet tells him something he doesn't want to hear. So he goes home, mad, pouting, sullen, lip dragging the ground, probably. Oh, no, the prophets just don't ever say anything good about me. <laughs> he dies. And we're going to see that. Well, some lessons I'm going to give you tonight. God shows himself strong to those who will trust Him. God shows Himself strong to those who will trust Him. Second lesson, God sometimes shows Himself strong to those who don't deserve it just to display His mercy and long-suffering. God sometimes shows Himself strong to those who don't deserve it just to display His mercy and long-suffering. Third lesson, God doesn't simply act to satisfy our curiosity, but to bring glory to His name. Fourth lesson, no man can stand against God regardless of the odds. Therefore, go with God if all the world is against you for it. Fifth, God does not look upon obedience or disobedience as a small thing. Obedience and disobedience aren't small things, folks. And then a last lesson, judgment eventually comes to all. 